Hello, welcome to Unbiased with me, Darshi Harindra. I help organizations rethink how they use data and new technologies in a compliant, unbiased, and inclusive way. I'm on a mission to rehumanize technology so that we can max out on all the potential benefits it brings whilst keeping people very much at the center of its oversight and success. Now, this podcast is very much centered on the human side of the equity and inclusion equation. Through guests sharing their stories of how bias has affected and continues to affect their day-to-day lives, we can get a glimpse into the beautifully complex fabric interwoven into our communities. And we can learn about some of their work in trying to address or combat the ill effects of some of those biases. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Rana Tayara. Dr. Rana was born and brought up in Lebanon and has studied and worked in the UK and Australia. Rana is a PhD psychologist specializing in childhood trauma. She has been a psychological consultant for a number of NGOs in Lebanon, Jordan and the UK, working with refugees, delinquent youth and individuals with special needs. Since moving to Australia in January 2016, Rana has continued to hone her focus on raising awareness against child abuse and, more specifically, against child sexual abuse. Currently, Dr. Rana is a full-time lecturer at the University of Canberra. She also runs her own consultancy where she gives training and provides online counselling sessions. Rana, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so looking forward to learning more about your life and work. Uh, The areas you specialize in, which I've touched on a little in your intro, they really hold particular interest for me personally, I have to say, as a mother to two very young daughters. I must confess that issues pertaining to childhood mental health and abuse has ended up taking over many a wine-fueled dinner amongst other close mum friends of mine, whether sharing their own experiences or sharing our concerns as a group and strategies as to how to best raise and continue to protect our precious and really just so vulnerable small humans. So now Rana, I also know that you too have an Arab language podcast um, and that's centered around storytelling. So I know how much you value the importance of sharing stories as a means to truly connect and gain an understanding for a person. So starting with your own story, you were born and raised in Lebanon and relatively recently became an Australian citizen. Mm -hmm. So share with us your story of growing up in Lebanon, what took you overseas, and what led you to your current profession? Um, Being raised in Lebanon in the 80s, born and raised in Lebanon in the 80s, unfortunately, uh, like many Lebanese, my generation and the generation before me, we lived through a lot of war traumas um, that truly affected us. Um, I was lucky to have had really amazing parents to shelter me. But nonetheless, definitely, um, the political issues, the 
the war um, and other elements that have affected our just growing up in Lebanon um, has really in a way um, kind of pushed me to want to identify and find out um, reasons behind why and how this trauma has shaped us from such a young age. So I went into psychology. Um, I did my bachelor degree at the American University of Beirut and then went on to do my master's as well. And then June 2006, another war hit. Um, and this is when my father looked at me and said, I'm not keeping you here. You're going, mm. you finish your master's and you're going um, away. Um, do your PhD or something abroad. So this is what took me to um, the UK, to the University of York, to do my PhD over there. And obviously, because of everything that was happening as well then, I was really um, wanting to look further into and research further into um, trauma and childhood trauma particularly. And that's how it all started for me. Mm. So, Rana, can you share, for those of us that, that don't have that full uh, insight into the situation in Lebanon, um, I think we're, I'm sure many are, are very aware of, of the, the troubles that were there, but can you share some of your stories of growing up there with that background and, and give some context to yeah. what drove your father, very understandably, to say, leave as soon as you can. Yeah, in the late 80s, we had a, a war in Lebanon between um, the army and a, another militia. Um, and that has, that meant that for many, many days and weeks and months, we actually lived in shelters, um, mm. underground shelters. Um, when we went to school at the beginning of all of this, we had to hide in hallways, being scared of um, bombardments, being scared of um, different um, issues that pertain to war and conflict. Um, we also had the Lebanon-Israel war, which also added to all that um, stress and <laughs> and everything that comes with it, with um, living um, a war. Unfortunately, that also meant that Lebanon for many years, still till now, uh, we had issues with electricity. We don't have electricity on a full-time basis. Um, we had issues with water. We don't have clean water. So we all have to buy water in bottles to drink. <laughs> and we had issues with um, now more and more with um, um, the, go the government um, and finances and a lot of things that I cannot really explain because I don't understand them much, but definitely have affected um, the way we just live our day-to-day -day basis. So actually when I went back to, because I wanted to go back to Lebanon to work mm. with children and their traumas, and me, my PhD was about war trauma and its effects on children, resiliency, emotional intelligence, aggressive behavior. Mm. But when I had my 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 eldest, um, things were not good in Lebanon. And this is when I looked at my husband and I said, we're leaving now. And we came to Australia. 
Right. So between so you went back after from after your studies, your PhD studies in the UK, um, to try and give back um, there, and then having your own child, we drove you to do that. Yeah, very common thing of nature is to to protect yeah. um, our own as best we can. Um, was it easy for you to move um, and study in the UK? There must was there a big sort of exodus um, of people? Was there uh, certain hurdles that you had to overcome to yeah. get to the UK? Yeah. Um, first and foremost, um, actually getting my visa to <laughs> to leave Lebanon as a Lebanese holding a Lebanese passport, it's very hard for us to um, get the visas and leave. So that was the big issue first. There was a lot of issues around that, even though I had my university offer, I had accommodation, I had everything, but still. Um, When I got to the UK, unfortunately, as you might imagine being an Arab, um, there's a lot of biases, there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of um, stereotype um, or stereotypical thoughts that are actually attached to us. So there was a lot of that. Um, I was asked, how come I have a good English coming from an Arabic country? Um, how come I'm doing a PhD as a female? Um, coming from an Arabic country, if when I'm going back home, I have a husband waiting for me. Um, as a Muslim woman, how come I am out um, and, and at clubs and dancing? Um, as a Muslim woman, um, how come I'm wearing a shirt? And that was actually even coming from um, non-Lebanese or non-Arabs, Muslims, as well as non-Arabs, wow. non-Muslims. Um, so there was a lot of questions that included some form of micro aggression, if I may say. Mm. So negative and positive biases, but definitely a lot of microaggression attached to both of those. Do I live in a tent? Do I have camels? Do I live in a desert? (laughs) Wow. A lot of misconceptions. (laughs) Yeah. And that was when, like the early noughties? That was in 2006 onwards. Not Not that long ago. Not that long ago. And I'm always interested in this as a a Brit who moved, uh, born and raised in the UK, who moved to Australia. But did you find any particular differences uh, or any more or less bias moving to Australia as compared to the UK? Um, Yeah, I kind of, yes, especially here in Canberra, where I am now, um, there's, I felt there's more acceptance. Um, I felt there was more openness. But I think it also has to do with, um, I think possibly because people, especially in London, um, they've experienced some form of um, negative behavior coming from Arabs, possibly that might not have been the case here in Australia. So I kind of understand as well uh, where that might be coming, but it's too much of a generalization that goes beyond anything. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And how different has your practice been as a psychologist from working in Lebanon compared with Australia, who... Uh, has not really suffered the same kind of yeah. war traumas that yeah. your 
clientele in Lebanon would have. Do you know what I love about Tramadashi is that the fact it's so much based on a subjective perception of an event. So while possibly people in Australia haven't lived war, but they have lived traumas, even little ones that may have affected them drastically. Um, and this is what people go, but you haven't gone through war to experience or to talk about trauma. No, but they've had their own traumas and their own perception of that trauma. Um, so it's different experiences, different events, but very similar in terms of um, possibly feelings, thoughts, behaviors around traumatic events. The only difference is that here in Australia, people are more willing to actually seek help for the little things here and there. Whereas in Lebanon, it has to be something really drastic for them to say, okay, it's time for me to go and talk to a counselor or a psychologist. Right, yes. And again, I suppose the context might have something to do with that, where you are suffering with so much and there comes a, there's a sort of a hierarchy, I guess, of where down the chain it will come before you seek help. But that's a really fascinating insight for me to come from you as a specialist that it that subjective element and particularly I think with children and encouraging that development and I know even as a a, a child of of immigrants it's it's very common in that narrative of oh you kids don't know how good you've got it compared to to us and what we've grown yeah. up with and and actually among immigrants in the context of the almost epidemic of mental health issues that we have in youth today, this real incredulity of what, why, why are children facing these things? They haven't had to go through half of the things that our parents had to, had to go through. So I think that that kernel there of just really trying to remember that this is a subjective thing and whether you were brought up in, in a, a palace or a slum or in a war-torn country or wherever, that actually these issues can, can affect everyone and you need to apply that same level of compassion yes. and that rigor in, in analysis to, to help them out of it. Because yes that's not really very helpful in the moment is it to say oh well compared to other people you've got it fine so off you off you go yeah uh, and so I know we know that you um that you currently lecture but you also have your own consultancy can you share a bit more about that and how and what your reasons for sort of branching out into that more individual uh practice yeah. um who is your target audience you know is it just a clinical practice or does it go a bit broader than yeah. that I'd love to hear more so um after I went from working with trauma I've realized how many of the childhood trauma were actually based on sexual abuse unfortunately um so I wanted to work further on that and I realized how much there's lack of understanding of what is sexual abuse, who could be a sexual abuser or a molester, and what parents could do to actually prevent or support their kids in case, unfortunately, this happens. And my target, so this is where, where it all started for me. I wanted to provide that awareness around sexual abuse and sexual education because it plays a huge part in um, preventing and helping parents and kids to um, work with their children on preventing sexual abuse. Um, my target audience has been mostly people in the Arab world 
simply because I know in Australia, um, there's there's a lot of talk around sexuality education um, and much more awareness than there is in the Middle East and in the Arab world. Um, so it's it's mostly to to people in in the Middle East and the Arab world, but it's unfortunately, unfortunately, it's getting um, positive and negative um, feedback. So positive feedback just you know, around the fact that someone at least is talking about this, a big, big taboo issue um, in in the Middle East, huge taboo. Um, but at the same time, a lot of people are afraid that I'm talking about this because that means to them that I'm possibly opening people's eyes onto some things that they shouldn't know about or be informed about. Yeah, now that's a really... A big, a big issue, or, or there's been a lot more awareness raised around these ideas of intersectionality and where you know race and culture and other elements mix with health type type issues or mental health issues. And it was interesting in thinking about chatting to you before, Rana. I when I think of people who work with with children. For me personally, I often think of the basic needs of children and being a mother as something that really transcends race and culture and socioeconomic status. It can be things that really unite people. But when you talk about issues like child abuse and particularly sexual abuse, suddenly the attitudes as to how they're addressed will likely differ wildly based on those cultural norms. And um, I know in that space, it's been something here in Australia, I've seen a lot of moves to try and really niche these markets of, oh, just abuse to actually those of certain cultural backgrounds where even speaking about it can be a big issue. Um, And something else um, through some of these chats with other mums that, I, that I'd mentioned, it, um, I had learned, and you'd probably know the stats on this better than me, but a really high percentage of uh, perpetrators of sexual abuse are not only known to the children, but often within that family circle. And that, for me, that blew my mind. <laughs> um, but also, how how in your practice do you deal with these challenges of addressing the bias that these victims and children are likely to face within their communities and where, for example, there is there are known abusers or part, someone that is also part of that cultural fabric? Yeah. How do you start to go about unraveling that? Only eight percent are she of abusers or molesters are strangers. Unfortunately, only 8%. (laughs) Wow. So 92% are known to a victim. Yeah. And a very high percentage of that 90 are actual direct family members. So it's it's scary. And I think because of that high percentage people... um, So what I actually tell parents, and I make it very clear, and I tell the kids when I'm talking to kids, and I tell my, my kids the same, is that... Whenever a child comes to you and tells you someone has um, touched them or told them something that made them feel uncomfortable in any way, to believe them no matter who the other person is. Mm. Thinking that a, um, your father, your grand, your grandfather, your uncle, your um, aunt, your grandmother, your mother, anyone 
is not a molester because they can be, they're nice, or they're not a molester because you grew up with them, or you know, they're not a molester because you can't imagine seeing a family member being um, a molester is not an excuse to dismiss a child um, statement. Um, unfortunately, and it's scary to say it, but we have to um, treat everyone as potential suspects in a way and really take every word that a child says seriously um and i tell i tell my daughter every day i say regardless who the person is if they make you feel uncomfortable in any way you come and tell me and i will believe you and i think that's and this is scary in a society, especially in Lebanon, where, and I know in other cultures as well, where the elderly, for example, are really looked at as people of, you know, status. And, um, and you never talk badly about them or state anything that is inappropriate. Or you never say no to them. That's, that's on yep. top of everything. Grandma wants a hug. You have to give grandma a hug. You cannot say no to grandma. Um, so it's been hard to actually tell people um, in those communities that, no, you're allowed to, a child is allowed to say no to anyone, regardless of who they are, if that person is making them feel uncomfortable in any way. Yeah. And what's your advice to parents in addressing that with the potential perpetrator and and addressing as I sort of mentioned, I did that kind of that negative bias that, is, that could fall back onto them or their child. Yeah. So I, I, I put initially tell my direct family members that when a child, when my child is uncomfortable um, in a certain situation and they say, no, please respect that and back off. I think that's extremely important. Do not take it personally. No one means it in a personal way. They still do. I have to admit, they still yeah. do. But yeah. I go back and I enforce it. So it's important, I think, to tell parents to be honest around these things. Have rules for the family and really be honest. We have rules in our family that states that if my child does not want to be touched, hugged, kissed, um, fed, mm-hmm. they're allowed to say no and the other person has to respect that and it's not personal. So making it very clear from the beginning. And I guess being consistent as well in that, in applying that and so that your your child as well knows that anytime that's the that's a rule and that's how it will get applied and there's not a special dispensation for grandma 100%. or someone else. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of raising awareness, as you were talking about, what are your how are you finding that journey and what are your biggest challenges and what has proven to be so far the more successful ways to raise awareness in this area? Challenges has been mostly regarding talking about sexuality education, talking about private parts and how to address these issues with our kids, um, because in in especially in our Arabic language, we don't name private organs. It's like a big no-no. They're linked to something that is really considered a taboo. To give you an example, for example, (laughs) this is funny. For um, the Arabic word for penis is adib, which actually translates into a stick. Okay. And and so, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, but yeah. it's it's more it's also beyond that. It's the stick that people long time ago used to like punish kids with, you know, like, like I'll hit right. you with that stick. Okay. <laughs> so you can imagine the connotation around that word. Yeah. It's really bad. And a lot of women don't even know the Arabic word for vulva. Um, they don't even know that there's a vulva, actually. They just consider right. the vagina, you know? And yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of taboo about talking about private parts in general, even among adults, um, even in yeah. relationships between a man and a woman. So to actually tell parents that this is something you need to start doing with a child since day one, when they're born, you have to introduce them to their penis and their vulva the same way you introduce them to their eyes and their nose is... <laughs> but on top of that, I also talk a lot about um, sexual orientation and sexual identity. Um, and there's a lot of um, misconception around um, abuse and sexual orientation and the idea that um, if a child is abused, they will become gay, uh, which definitely is not. There's it's not the case. There's no research that actually backs that up. So, so talking about these topics has been very challenging. I have even had um, messages of people telling me that um, they will um, complain about me to authorities and they they will find me. And I'm like, I'm in Australia. You're not gonna find me. <laughs> and I've had I've had wow. colleagues telling me that they think that I am comfortable about talking talking about this in the Arab world is because I'm not part of that world anymore or I'm not actually living in that world anymore and that they would never be able to talk about it the way I do. That's, in some ways, that that sounds like a kind of reasonable assumption to make that actually being, being outside of it and in a much more supportive um, environment can help to speak out about it in a way that maybe is a bit harder. But that being said, I really applaud you for all that you do in that space because people like you are few and far between to take that leap to say, no, actually, we need to kind of come out about it because there is a lot in that world of sort of oh, just, you know, come and maybe do some stuff behind closed doors. I'll help you as an individual. Um, yeah. But that's just the way it is. Unfortunately, we're operating in this fabric of, uh, cultural dissonance and cognitive dissonance over those things so uh, I think it's I think it's really important to amplify um those awareness raising uh efforts that that, that you make and, and that's absolutely why Thank I'm you. so thrilled to have you join me um, and to spread that word because it's so important. Thank you. And as we draw our conversation to a close Rana tell me what is that the lasting change that you would like to see in your e area of expertise over the course of your career? I think more acceptance around mental health issues. We still have a lot of uh, work to do um, around that and around the fact that it's okay not to be okay and it's okay to ask for help even for the littlest things. Um, in life and not wait until it hits hard before we actually um, go and speak about it. Yeah, that's a brilliant piece of advice and just so simple for it, for all those parents out there. And I know you have, you have young children and, and has being a parent 
before I totally let you go, has being a parent changed the way that you practice or taught you little things or nuances that you might see in your daughter or your son and go, oh, okay, that's that's interesting. I hadn't kind of thought about that through the theoretical lens. Before having um, my kids, and I see it a lot in psychologists who don't have kids, I used to be very kind of perfectionist in terms of this is how things mm. have to be. You have to follow whatever this says. And now I look at these psychologists and I laugh because I was like, mm, not really. <laughs> the theory does not apply 100% in practice. <laughs> So I think a lot of times, and I do tell parents that as well, is that if you do follow an um, an influencer on social media or a psychologist um, and do take whatever they say, but adjust it so that it fits your life, so that it's actually flexible and fits your own way of being, your own values, your own belief system, and not word for word for what is actually being said. (laughs) That, that that again for me personally that's really is is gold because I know I've been I've probably ditched the, the books and the uh you know the, the parenting kind of guidance because so often I, I read through them and then I can't you know and it just looks like a b c d you try this and then your child will do what you ask them to do. <laughs> no it doesn't work like that <laughs> I know when it comes to what comes out of their mouth I'm looking at this book thinking no that's that's not covered here um Rana thank you so much for sharing your story for shedding light onto some of the issues that that you're helping to raise awareness with but also helping us to just see how much commonality there is in terms of when it comes to to mental health and that subjectivity um, element Um, and that's really what this podcast is about is to kind of unpick biases but also to just really see how much brings us all together so I wish you every success um, and we'll be following your work closely thank you Thank you, Dasha, so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbiased with me, Dashi Harindra. I derive so much energy and learn so much from speaking to such inspiring guests and amplifying diverse voices. If you feel the same way, please do subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you consume your content from and follow me and the podcast so you can get all the latest episodes as they drop. I'd also love to hear from you, what works for you, what you'd like to hear more of. You can connect with me via my website, darshiharindra.com. Until next time, stay open, stay curious.